The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. Uh, He is a professor at the Goucher College in Baltimore. Uh, He is also the author of a new book called Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. Welcome to the show, Victor. Oh, thank you for having me. I always enjoy talking about behavioral finance. Absolutely. Just tell a little bit, I mentioned a little bit about your professor, uh, but just tell me a little bit about your background, both academic and other books that you've written in this field. Um, I attend, I uh, teach currently at Goucher College. Uh, I uh, teach undergraduate classes in behavioral finance, investments, psychology of money, personal finance, and corporate finance. Uh, I've been a professor for about maybe seven, eight years full time. Um, I started off working for Wall Street firms as a mutual fund accountant, so I'm very familiar with um, some real-world experience. So I'm very also familiar with uh, various aspects of financial uh, securities and and so forth because I worked in the industry for a number of years. Very good. You start off, let's just kind of start at a high level here. Once people understand uh, the behavioral aspect of uh, finance and how psychology affects their financial decisions. What kind of difference can that make in uh, the kind of financial decisions they end up making, and both individually investing, dealing with financial advisors? Kind of, what is the payoff from learning about all we're going to talk about there during this hour? I think the main thing, or my typical position, or my assumption is, I I have a great affinity for the uh, tools of standard finance, which are modern portfolio theory, diversification. Uh, you know, investing for the long term, rebalancing, and so forth. I just disagree, or the behavioral finance school disagrees with why people actually make those decisions. I, you know, so if you can discover what your mental mistakes are and your uh, financial uh, issues, especially with emotion or cognitive processes, and correct those and put it in a disciplined strategy, I think you can learn to act the way the textbooks tell you you should act rather than the way you really act in the real world. So you're saying that the way people say, in theory, they're supposed to act is different than what they actually do, for example, with emotion and and getting swept up in greed and uh, depressed by fear and therefore buying high and selling low, things like that. Uh, Emotion can be more important than numbers in a certain way. Exactly. Or or if you use both. Or if you want to make a more complete decision, I think if you use the, the tenets or the most important aspects of both schools of thought, I think is, is what I try to do, my approach to decision-making. So at the beginning of your book, uh, you have a chapter called Traditional and Behavioral Finance. So kind of contrasting what traditional financial theory is about with what behavioral finance. So just kind of give us an overview there of what are the main differences between traditional and behavioral finance and the way they look at the way people act with their money? Um, the traditional uh, finance point of view uh, first makes the assumption that people are rational, 
uh, the stand, the behavioral finance view says people use something called bounded rationality. So we don't necessarily, we're not completely crazy or rational, but we, we many times make satisfactory decisions. So um, then this, coming back to the traditional school, that, that in the traditional school would be that we optimize. We're going to make the, the best or choose the best, op- uh, best choice. The behavioral school says we suffice. Maybe we don't make the best, best choice, according, but we, we make one that maybe would be in the top two or the top three, so we, we're satisfied with our decisions. Uh, the traditional model thinks we're calculators, not emotional, and that we, that we uh, calculate things by standard deviations, and we think of things in a diversified portfolio. The behavioral school would say, well, you know, we're impacted by our, our emotions, our cognitive processes, and these lead to less optimal decisions, but many times also lead to even uh, worse decisions. So they're, they're, those are some of the main aspects. And also the, um, the traditional school would say that we're risk-averse. Um, the traditional the, the behavioral school would also say we're risk averse, but we're also loss averse, meaning that we don't like losses. Losses tend to be twice as painful on the downside as an upside gain. So people don't remember gains as much as they feel the pain of losses, is what you're saying. Exactly. And then that causes also many times we sell on the upside too early, and on the downside we... Uh, hold on to losers in our portfolios too long because you don't want to actually realize the emotional loss of a loss. So people don't want to be embarrassed or admit that they made a mistake in effect. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, again, like anything else, if you, you, know, you go to the track or you go, you know, or you t- everybody tells you about the winning stock, they never tell you about the bunch of losers in their portfolio. Yes. One of the uh, key traditional financial uh, models is the so-called efficient market hypothesis. Basically that uh, all information is out there already, and therefore it's hard to beat the market because everything's efficiently priced. What is the behavioral view of the efficient market hypothesis? I would say there, there's, uh, there, there's some degree of uh, efficiency, but um, you have to look at things, for example, many times uh, the behavioral school would say the uh, prices sometimes overreact and underreact to news. So sometimes um, really bad news about a stock for somebody who's been buying it for a while and really believes in the stock may not be processed by, the, by a group of investors for a long time, so there's an underreaction in the sell of a, of a stock versus other times where you have high expectations for earnings and you miss a, a earnings by only a little bit and the uh, price overreacts and, and moves down too quickly uh, to that particular news. So it, there's still a degree of inefficiency according to the behavioral school. So if you understand that, what are you recommending as an investor, that they buy something that's just fallen sharply, that's missed expectations a little bit because it's an overreaction, and that they buy on the upside, that it, it, the good news is not fully reflected in the price? How, how would an investor use what you just talked about. I think a trader can do that. I come back to, if you're, I, I tend to stress, if you're an investor, that you don't necessarily worry about, worry about all these different uh, inefficiencies, or even if you believe in the efficient market hypothesis, it's that coming back to that diversified portfolio, having a strategy, trying to utilize a risk tolerance, and then rebalancing that portfolio on a yearly basis. Rebalancing can be, makes sense financially, but psychologically, 
And behaviorally, it's difficult to sell your winners and buy more of the losers. So how do you offset that behaviorally? Well, I have a, I have two. I, in myself, I'll give you an example. I, I have a, my overall portfolio of my retirement. I, I don't touch that. I have my asset allocation based on my risk tolerance, and I have about maybe five thousand dollars that I use to uh, buy individual stocks if I really believe in something and I want to. I do want to own a small portion in individual <laughs> stocks. I utilize that small piece. And then for the rest of my portfolio, I'm essentially a long-term investor. Or as I tell my students, I go to the track every once a year just to, to uh, control my gambling urges too also. <laughs> so is, is that a good idea for people to control their gambling urges? I mean, a lot of people today have an awful lot of money sitting in CDs and money market funds and treasury bills, pretty much earning zero, and the prospect that's going to earn zero for a long time. And meanwhile, their cost of living is going up, so they're losing purchasing power by being so safety conscious. So, so oh, maybe yeah, I think that I think people are still and there's a, a there's a chapter in the book that talks about the financial crisis for instance and which deals with uh, people suffer from uh, essentially sh- generational shocks. So uh, the concern is that we have even not even the uh, generation Y which is ages um, say 18 to 34 that there's discussion they're going to become the great uh, the next uh, uh, baby, uh, depression baby boomer generation, it's um, how do we, as, as a policy issue, try to get them educated enough to where they should have some degree of money in riskier assets or essentially in the stock market. So it's, it's very important to have something in the market and to understand what, what your objectives are and so forth. What has been the psychological impact of the, the big downturn of 2008 and the remarkable rebound since that time, has uh, this been as big a psychological scar as the Great Depression of the 1930s? I don't think, uh, I would say the, uh, I, in my, one of my book chapters on risk tolerance and risk perception, my co-author, uh, we, I found about 10 to 12 um, studies that have been done since the financial crisis, and the, the evidence is mixed, but I would say the, the general theme is that even though people's risk tolerance may still, still be the same, meaning that they have a, 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 they're willing to put a certain amount into the market in theory if they fill, fill out a risk tolerance questionnaire, what they've been impacted by the financial crisis and, and what they're also doing is anchoring and anchoring is they're latching on to the financial crisis from five years ago and feeling that loss that the perception or the risk perception is they fear or view the stock market as riskier. So what's happening is that maybe over time that fear or that risk perception, my concern is that the um, people with uh, say above average risk tolerance may become more risk averse because of the fear and the feelings that they're feeling based on uh, per- their perception. So it, does it matter how long the downturn is or it's how steep it is? I mean, this was a very, when you look at it, a pretty quick uh, downturn and then a pretty quick upturn in the 2008-2009 period. Yeah. Well, but the that's, 1930s that's, was, went on for years. Does, does yeah, it make a difference as to how I long think, it lasts? I, I don't think the comparison to, uh, you know, the great, to the Great Recession, to the Great Depression is essentially the same. Um, the 29 crash, I believe, took until, it took until uh, early 1950s or so to get back to the all-time highs. This recovery uh, in the market has taken about five years, or it took about five years. 
So I don't think the, the lasting um, effects will be as much, but I'm also hoping that people did learn enough where that, that they will seek a financial advisor. I think that's another very important issue is having a financial planner um, you know, is also uh, people who are going it alone right now and also learn to listen to their financial planner is also another very important uh, issue. So did, did that not happen the last time when the market turned down? Financial planners told people to hang in there and a lot of people freaked out and sold anyway? Well, and, and that's where there has to be a, a good deal of communication between the planner and the client. Um, uh, in my book, uh, my uh, co-author and I, um, Doug Rice, look at that in the risk tolerance question, uh, chapter uh, on risk perception. Um, he found in a research study that he did several years ago that there was something, he looked at 130 different risk tolerance questionnaires, and the formats and the accuracy and the lack of definition, um, and that they really don't even talk, there's no empirical evidence that even directs directly ties to the proper asset allocation is, uh, you know, it's a very, uh, still a very um, exploratory thing to try to measure someone's risk tolerance. So I think the, 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 the true risk tolerance for people is to really assess how they reacted during these periods of downturns. Are they comfortable? If they have $100,000 and they have, you know, they have 50% of that money in stocks, you know, and, and there's a major downturn, can they deal with a market that falls 25% of $50,000? Are they going to pull out? And if they are, then they shouldn't have that much money in stocks. I think that's kind of the other way of really talking about the client, the, the, the planner trying to communicate with the client. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He's the author of a new book called Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. He is also an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. Hi, I'm Joe Swedish, CEO of WellPoint. We proudly support the March of Dimes and all they do to reduce the rate of premature birth in the United States. Though premature births have recently declined, 
Still, half a million babies are born too soon each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs that help moms and their babies live healthier lives. Please visit MarchofDimes.com and join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He is a professor at uh, the Financial Management uh, Department at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. He's also the author of a new book called Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. Welcome back to the show, Victor. Uh, Thanks for having me. So you talk about what's called prospect theory and loss aversion. Maybe kind of put that in plain English and what that means as to how people act when the market's going up or down. Well, prospect theory is also based on the assumption where people make, uh, the way it sounds, they, they prospect. They make, it's based on alternatives. Um, so they're looking at individual transactions. Uh, the, the other key point to understand about it is um, that the initial experiments for prospect theory started in the 1920s, uh, uh, excuse me, 1970s and 1980s, and it was a typically assumed, first of all, they were based on a cognitive or a mental process. So the cognitive process deals with non-emotion or essentially what's known as heuristics. Uh, heuristics are, are essentially rules of thumbs that we use for making decisions. So that's the, that's the general f- framework of how the theory started. Uh, later in the 90s and into the early 2000s, they started to put the emotional uh, testing of the theory or apply, applying emotion to it. So I thought th- that was an po- important point. But the prospect theory is then taking, uh, looking at individual transactions when we make decisions and uh, comparing how we uh, would make a decision between a gain and a loss. So as we talked a little bit about before, uh, people on the upside uh, look at, say they had a $1,000 gain, um, they would typically sell that earlier. And that's on, on that side of the uh, diagram, if you want to call it, they're typically feeling pride. On the downside, people are essentially loss-averse, and they don't want to take the loss, but also that equi- equivalent um, $1,000 gain on the upside feels like a $2,000 loss. And they also associate with that what's known as regret because they don't want to realize the regret of realizing the loss. So that's another emotional piece to it. Indeed. Um, you also talk about overconfidence as being a big part of where people get into trouble. What are some of the studies about overconfidence when people invest? Well, a, a, a classic one is looking at gender bias. Um, Terry O'Dean and Brad Bar- Barber looked at, I believe, 35,000 accounts in a, a study um, 
in which they looked at uh, the data was from uh, the early to mid-1990s, and they lo looked at uh, comparing men and women a re from a real discount brokerage firm. They got the data, and as I said, they looked at about 35,000 accounts, and they, they found that women tend to be better investors. They uh, hypothesize because men are overconfident. Because men are overconfident, they trade too much. That drives up their trading costs, and they miss out on gains because they're trading so much. So they found that roughly in that six-year period, women um, had a rate of return 1% more per year. And so as I always tell my students, the writing joke is, guys, just learn to say yes to, your, to, your, to the wife, and you'll be fine, and you'll have a wonderful retirement. I guess one of the lessons from all this is uh, the old Wall Street adage is to let your profits run and cut your losses short, which is just saying what most people don't do. They're, they take their profits too early and they let their losses mount. Is that what you're, you're saying? Exactly, because, again, people, you know, the, the uh, traditional school, you know, says that people have uh, $100,000. They lose 1% of that. And you know they're viewing it as a percentage. Well, one percent of a hundred thousand dollars is still a thousand dollars. So people are not going to think about that hundred that that pro, you know, process here is not being thought of a thousand dollars within a hundred thousand uh, dollar piece because the, also the other line piece of the prospect theory is there's a reference point that people are using. Again, with that anchoring uh, bias is also evident. So some other concepts you use uh, is the whole concept of animal spirits, which I guess originally was, was Keynes, and more recently uh, Greenspan talked about irrational exuberant. Do people get caught up in the enthusiasm of an up market and their animal spirits go a little bit too wild? Exactly. I mean, if you look at, especially recently, if you, or more recently in recent history, you look at um, herd behavior, in particular with the Internet bubble, and then we had the housing bubble, and then we had that combined with you know, the stock market bubble at the same time, um, you know, and, and, and it starts off uh, in two different herd forms. Uh, there's typically one herd that it, people are speaking together, they're in a group, they start to invest in the stock, but then they see uh, the other informal herd is they start to discuss and they see stuff on TV, and then people want, are even part of the racial herd, and they, they want to be part of the mania, and they see it on TV, they read about it, reports, and that then even contributes further to the herd and, and the over-animal spirits. But it can change quickly. I mean, for example, last year or so, we've had a big rise in some of the most uh, fast-growing momentum stocks, uh, Netflix, Tesla, Priceline, Google, uh, Twitter, Facebook, you know, companies like that that are fast growing and gone to very high valuations. And then even in the last month or so, the psychology seemed to have changed and people going more towards value. What makes the psychology change when nothing really has changed in the underlying company's fundamentals? Well, maybe people are, maybe, you know, maybe there are a group of investors that have actually learned something. Because um, even if you look at, I, I know there's been discussion that there's, there's a, there worries about, um, you know, the current IPO markets, uh, are we repeating what was going on in yes. the 1990s? And um, there, has, there have been a few unsuccessful IPOs, so that's actually a good thing because then people are actually, you know, the, the greatest scrutiny is that people should be looking at any of these investments. Do they have a realistic business model that is actually eventually going to generate profits 
and the basics, going back to having a P ratio, uh, market-to-book ratio, and so forth. So that's how I still think you can use the traditional me- measures, and if you don't get caught up in the short-term momentum play. I mean, um, you know, even trying to understand, uh, even myself, I try to look at a Twitter or a Facebook, and I'm trying to, you know, so t- even on Twitter, they have the option where even LinkedIn, uh, the way that you can run ads even on an individual basis, I just did an experiment just trying, I didn't, I didn't actually run any ads, but seeing how they're using a bidding process to um, let people to, to run ads. So, so I'm even trying to understand some of the business models and then trying to say, is this really going to work and create realistic revenue? I, I'm undecided, but that's what people have really, if they want, people really want to look at those particular stocks, they really need to understand the business of the stock to make a, pr- a prudent investment. I mean, what the investment bankers would say is the companies coming public today are solid, they have revenues, they have profits, they've got real businesses. This is unlike the dot-com craze of 1999 and 2000, where you had a lot of companies with concepts, with no profits, with no revenues. You know, it was times eyeballs as opposed to times earnings. And so this is a much healthier market, and this, it's not frothy at all. How would you react to that? I would still, still say there's still a lot that there is... Still, even Facebook still ha- you have to have you until if you're looking at a stock like, like that until you actually have a three to five year set of true earnings to work off of it's still a lot still potentially hypothetical business models that's why even like a Google Google has shown that for their size company that they can generate advertising dollars based on their model. So, you know, the, the same metrics, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm not uh, necessarily recommending these, as, these as, I'm using these as educational uh, discussion, but um, they seem to at least have a track record. They, they showed that they could actually generate revenue for an extended period of time. Um, the, the idea is the same thing with even a Facebook. Say you want to buy a Facebook, use dollar cost averaging and don't get all, you know, if you want to have a prescribed a strategy, don't put all your, your money into that particular stock right away. Maybe buy it in increments over, say, a, a yearly basis, say, over five years, and then while you're going through that, at least you then see if the business model is truly working. So this is combating the over-optimism we're talking about, because people get too optimistic and they put too much into it too quickly, particularly exactly. if there's an IPO, and then that's where the trouble starts. Exactly. That's why, you know, if you tend to be an optimistic person, there's an, something called optimism bias in which people, um, so, so if, if a stock had a very good run-up for six months or even a year, and even just general asset classes, people then take that one year's worth of data and they then expect that... Uh, performance to last maybe another year, another two years, or no, another three years. That's the, those are the things that get the emotional, you know, over allocation or the, what they cause people to be underdiversified because they're putting too much of their money in one particular investment or asset class. So since you uh, do this and study this for so long, Victor, I'd be interested in how you do it yourself. Are you perfectly balanced and? Don't get over optimistic. You have a widely balanced portfolio. You don't get wrapped up in the business of crowds. You buy things in a contrarian way. How do you actually apply it in your own life? I I apply it where I I I tend to be a worrier at times. Um, 
I tend to mo- uh, react emotionally too much, and that's why, as I said, I, I have about, I think about 90% of my money to 95% of my money, put a lot of money into my, um, my, my um, retirement account uh, at work, uh, balance out that I have, um, try to split between um, uh, usually stocks, but across a wide range of asset classes. I make sure I use that Morningstar box in which I make sure I have uh, value stocks, uh, and growth, and a balance of mid-cap, small-cap, and large-cap. I also make sure I have an index, and then uh, I have an international exposure, and then I also look for quality real estate. I think um, real estate is always an, a, a good uh, mutual fund that invests in real estate, and I'm talking about high-quality real estate. is also a nice hybrid between uh, a bond fund and a... Uh, the traditional stock fund, and and I, and I tend not to like the bond fund because I worked in the industry. I realized that a bond fund, a bond mutual fund, is not the same thing as a bond. People have to realize is that it has a net asset value that moves with the the uh, the the performance of the bond market. If you own an individual bond and you hold it to maturity, you essentially are not going to be uh, susceptible to capital gains or capital losses on a mutual that you would with a mutual bond fund. So that's one thing I, I don't think the general public always realizes. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. Uh, he is an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore and author of the new book, Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He's the author of a new book called Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. He's also an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore. Welcome back to the show, Victor. Uh, thank you. Uh, one, one other thing I just want to say, I have a co-editor uh, who is, his name is uh, Kent Baker, and he's also a major contributor, so I certainly want his, him to Absolutely. be mentioned. You have a whole chapter in, uh, on the concept of financial literacy in education and what difference it makes. So some of the countries having financial literacy training, but a lot of the countries not. What difference does it make in investor behavior and uh, financial wellness in the long run to have financial literacy as opposed to not having it? Um, I just think it's very important because the, 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 we have a change in the general uh, in general society in which um, uh, you know people forget uh, that until thirty forty years ago many people the trend, the, the lifestyle was to have to stay at the same job for forty years get a traditional pension in which you were just given uh, a fixed amount you didn't have to worry about the asset allocation and so forth so it, it's really uh, the, the financial literacy issue has really become become apparent because now the trend is that we all have to do it individually um, with 401k plans with individual retirement account, accounts where you know two generations ago we didn't have to deal with that so you know part of this is that that societal transformation so that's why it's not all of a sudden you know people I don't I think people all of a sudden think uh, we're all stupid about financial literacy it's just I think what it comes down to is that now because over the last 30 years it's become more dependent on us that we have to find ways to um, to now to improve people's financial literacy. Also, even just the tr- trend of society, the, the first credit card wasn't created until 1958. So in the past, we were people who paid for things in cash. We didn't have the, ac- uh, the access to easy credit and so forth. So that's what has just made financial literacy such a, an important thing for every American, I think. In the fr- 401k area particularly, how do you think people are doing now that they do have to make these decisions? In many cases, with 40 or 50 choices, kind of overwhelming number of choices, are people in general allocating their money in a pretty good way in their 401ks or not? I would say no. And I would say just some behavioral issues people suffer from is the, the, the first behavioral issue that deals with people on many different levels is the notion of status quo bias or people suffer from inertia. So uh, meaning that it, it's hard to get people to invest in a retirement account to begin with. And then once you even get somebody to invest in a retirement account, they then don't make, they, they don't necessarily uh, make, they don't assess the, the risk tolerance they should have with the proper asset allocation. But even if they do that, once they do that, they, they don't even do the, the rebalancing. There was a study from several years ago that, that showed that, uh, looked at over a million accounts for about 1,500 um, company plan, 401k plans, and found that eight, 
approximately 80% of people made no trades or any asset allocation adjustments in their accounts over a two-year period. So that's an inertia piece. Uh, the other issue is people tend to suffer from familiarity bias in which they overinvest in assets or retirement accounts uh, assets or company plans that they are familiar with, and that then creates under-diversification. So if you're not familiar with uh, international funds or international stock markets, people, um, studies show, will say that maybe less than five, they allocate less than 5% of their overall money to international slash global funds, where maybe a better, you know, the rational model would say it should be closer to 30%. I would say at least at a minimum they should have maybe have at least 15%, depending on their risk tolerance, and their, if they're long-term investors, um, maybe 15%. So that's another piece of the retirement puzzle. So for somebody who wants to allocate their 401k in a better way, what would you recommend the right way to do it as opposed to the way you're saying people actually are doing it? Um, to be uh, active participants, uh, uh, depending on the amount of choices, but I don't, I don't think typically, you know, you could get away with maybe having, uh, I would say looking at the different literature, maybe you could have 8 to 12 choices, but it, uh, I think an important thing, as I stressed before, is to have that Morningstar box. Um, People do, you know, you know, we are also, another point about uh, behavioral finance is people are hardwired for growth, for growth or growth stocks or growth mutual funds. So typically, they, they, if they do have growth, they'll have growth in, in um, mid-cap, small-cap, and large-cap. But then people don't realize the importance or the long-term track record of having value stocks, and that, that means having value. And, and again, value is anything that is underperforming the market, uh, the Dow's of the door, door strategy in which people buy, uh, you know, last year's losers become next year's winners. Uh, so then having that value strategy in um, in um, small cap, large cap, and mid cap, and also the other premise of that is you're not trying to, 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 to pick the hot asset class in any given year, by having enough diversification across those asset classes, you then own a piece of each of the next hot ones as a percentage of your overall portfolio. And then that means index funds. I said also real estate before. And again, if... Um, you know, if you're going to have to deal with a bond fund or maybe there's a fund, some retiring plans offer maybe a fixed uh, annuity product within their uh, retirement account. And that's also another option, I think, because that, that's, again, that hybrid. I, I just have a little concern about people not understanding that a, a bond mutual fund sometimes acts like a stock mutual fund. No. You also have a whole section in your book about underrepresented minorities and ethnic groups and immigrants and so on um, who may be even newer to all these investment options. What kind of investor behavior do they tend to have today? They tend to underinvest in stocks. They, uh, you know, if it's, whether it's Hispanics, African Americans, um, they tend, uh, because they don't have the experience as a family unit, or their first generation, the same thing as your first generation college, first generation investors, um, it's very difficult for them to even have trust in the market. So another, another whole big issue is uh, trying to establish trust so people actually have confidence to, to put money in the stock market again. But that tends to be a, 
an, another major issue. I mean, if you you know, if you look internationally, culturally, um, you know, um, many countries are 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 in are, are are free for the first time, and then they have a stock market, and it's an experience to get them to actually start also investing in the market. So it, it's trying through public education. It's trying to also do that aspect. Another thing that has has started to impact from a policy issue, and we we talk a little bit about the book and the retirement chapter, and what's known as nudging, and which and I, and, I, and I'm a little I'm tend to be a little bit of an opponent of it. Uh, nudging is where you um, automatically instead of putting people, giving people the option to go into a retirement account, people certain com- a certain percentage of companies are are essentially automatically putting people into retirement accounts, and then they have to decide to opt out. And that concerns me because it's not looking at the person's complete financial health. So is it a good public policy to automatically put someone in a retirement account if they have ten to $20,000 of credit card debt? I tend to be a little bit of a skeptic of that, so I'm taking a little bit of a contrary view. But that's one of the issues that even when we're trying to solve the financial literacy retirement problem that those are the type of new policies that are coming through you have a whole section in your book about dealing with financial advisors in various ways both from the client's point of view and the financial advisor's point of view what kind of miscommunication is going on that's resulting in bad economic and investment behavior that could be improved if both sides understood each other better um i think two major issues or one major issue is the notion of framing, and so how we, we process words, how we discuss, how the client, uh, how the uh, how the financial planner uh, uses words to talk to the client is very important. So, so something called the annuity puzzle is discussed in the book, in which people tend not to like annuity products. So um, there was an experiment done that shows if, if you say to somebody that um, here is, say, a 30-year-old, and you're going to try to sell them a, a, a annuity product that they'll have at age 65. If you say to somebody you'll have $3,000 a month in retirement in investment income, only about 25% of or 30% of people take the investment. If you say to somebody, that 30-year-old, if you'll have... Um, you'll have $3,000 a month in retirement to uh, spend on vacations, play golf, um, uh, go, you know, uh, for entertainment purposes. People then, t- about maybe 65% approximately, take the investment because we we're, we're tend to be hardwired to want to consume today at the expense of savings tomorrow. So what they're finding is if you actually talk to somebody and you describe an investment as in the context of connecting it to a later in life uh, spending habit or consumption, that actually helps people to save. So for the uh, uh, planner, it's, uh, you know, if you disclose this, this idea, and it will help the, the, the client take the investment, but also if the individual uh, client understands it, it could be a motivator for them to stay with that plan. So that's kind of the, the different, that's one of the major issues that stands out in the book. Uh, the other idea is the notion of trust and control. Um, there's a kind of inverse relationship in which uh, the client should not be too con- too trusting 
in the planner and have a lack of control, because that leads to a very made-off situation, versus the other thing is if the client is too controlling and has no trust in the, in the advice the financial planner is, is giving, the, plan, uh, you know, you know, the, the planner is essentially going to get frustrated also because you're not going to listen to any of their advice. So those are a couple of issues that really stand out in my mind. I see it going both ways, yes. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He's the author of a new book called Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. He's also an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore. We'll be back after this. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Hi, I'm Joe Swedish, CEO of WellPoint. We proudly support the March of Dimes and all they do to reduce the rate of premature birth in the United States. Though premature births have recently declined, still half a million babies are born too soon each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs that help moms and their babies live healthier lives. Please visit marchofdimes.com and join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. Uh, He is the author of a new book called Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. Welcome back to the show, Victor. Well, thank you for having me. Let's talk about the psychology of trading and investing again and understanding all of what we've been talking about, how you can apply that. If you do want to be trading, what are some smart ways to do it using all these behavioral financial techniques we've learned about? Um, I would say that, again, trying to break out your strategies between if you're really a, a trader, you're typically, especially for tax purposes, you're doing it for less than a year. Um, anything uh, that you're really an investor or thinking about that perspective, the, the book defines it as more than a year, essentially for, along the lines of the, just the capital gains issues. Um, I would say earning surprises is typically a, a way that I, I see um, uh, some of the behavioral strategies being used. Uh, so many times, um, if you if you look at if you were comparing, say, Coke and Pepsi, and there there would be the notion that, say, uh, Coke comes in uh, with they meet earnings expectations. Pepsi does not, and and has below uh, earnings expectations. Many times, the whole industry or belt stocks may. Um, Inefficiently go down in a in a, a period of a week, 
the idea would be to say maybe to buy Coke, for example, hypothetically, uh, because that met the expectations that just got um, wound up with the downside of being uh, equated with or the crowd psychology of that particular industry. That's, so that's an example that somebody, uh, investment manager, once uh, gave to me. And also uh, another big, we talked a little bit about value, but, you know, uh, a true behavioral strategy is being a contrarian. And it's not, and it's not easy many times to be a contrarian, uh, to buy things when things are, you know, or even, uh, you know, to take that opposite uh, view is, a, is, a, is very difficult to do, but for, for those who really can deal, who have a high degree of risk tolerance and don't mind maybe having a small percentage of their portfolio in that type of perspective, I think that, that ha- that's another way that you deal with the, uh, contrarian, is a, the contrarian approach. So you think it's better to be actively contrarian? Something just plunged in value and you go in and buy it, and something it, soared in value and you short it, basically, is what you're saying? Um, if, if you have, and I guess I'm more, I'm, I'm a little less, uh, big proponent of short selling. Um, I guess the way I would look at it is if you fundamentally have do, uh, looked at the, uh, at the company and you've looked at, say, a P ratio, a market book, and that, you know, you're using the decline as a indicator to say this is a potential investment, but then have some kind of investment philosophy to to, um, to utilize that as a bicycle, whether that's technical analysis, which I'm not exactly a proponent of, but have those investment philosophies that you may uh, uh, believe in to try to use some kind of indicator to actually then buy it, rather than I'm not saying necessarily if something falls 25% and there is a valid reason for it, that's, and, and, and you see no hope, and it really is a rational decision, that's one thing, but if, if you find something that people don't see a new product coming along or, um, you know, another issue or, or just a miss, you know, an overreaction in the stock, that, that's what I'm kind of getting at. You also have a whole section in this book on motivation for investors, and you said this is kind of a new thing in the behavioral finance area. Yeah. What, what are some things you've learned about motivation for investors uh, doing better? Well, I, I think, it, especially for the financial planning process, um, if you know, when a, a client and a um, you know individual investor and a, a financial planner sit down with each other, many times we just have a plan that is one-dimensional based on you know, um, this is our objective for retirement. I think what you can do is you can use something like Maslow's hierarchy, and you could have, say, even even if you have two levels of a plan. So the the, the plan would be what you uh, the maximum of what you would want to say for retirement would be what motivates you. If if the plan comes up short have a minimum level and call that a level that satisfies you. So you can kind of then use that as a, you know, or the same thing as buying, you know, you, you, you may really want a four-bedroom house to motivate you, and that may, you may reach that goal, but say that you just don't, you're not going to save enough money and you realize that you don't want to save, you would rather buy a house right away, but the, the minimum house that you would buy, want to buy or the house that would want to satisfy you would be a, a two-bedroom house. So kind of using the, that context of, of that psychology uh, with, with uh, different of our needs, our wants, 
it's another unique perspective that's talked about in the book for planners and, and clients to understand what they want, how they're going to get it, and then thinking about those financial goals within that context of short, short-term goals, intermediate goals, and long-term goals. Indeed. You have a chapter on mutual funds and uh, advertising issues. So what are people, I mean, typically mutual funds are going to be advertising their hot funds that have the biggest returns over the shortest period of time. How are people supposed to react when they see uh, mutual fund advertising like that? Well, and that's, the, that's what they should be educated. The, the SEC does not necessarily have an a, 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 a exact um, format that, that is required by law to, on how returns are presented. So what people should be aware of is that many times you, they may show you the five-year return, which is the best year return, the three-year return may, that may be the, the best year return. So the uh, idea is that if they see a mutual fund and they're interested in, they should take a deeper look and really look at, say, 25 years worth of returns. I always tell my students, what is the worst year in the last 25 years of how the fund performed in a bear market? Um, uh, even, even if you look at now the... Um, the uh, framing effect or the anchoring effect is people. If you if you if a mutual fund advertisement right now only shows five year returns, that's excluding the that any down returns from the financial crisis. So all those five year if you if you're just looking at five year returns in retirement currently, all those returns are over exaggerated or they're going to have people suffer from optimism bias. Yes, it's going to look very, very good if you have five years today. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. You also have a whole chapter on real estate investment decision-making. What are some of the mistakes people make in buying and selling real estate? Um, people tend, again, back to that anchoring bias, especially if you are the seller of the house. People have, you know, um, even at the top of the market, if someone's house is worth $500,000 on uh, on the upside, no matter what they paid for it, even if they paid four hundred thousand dollars for the house, um, if the if the house is uh, if, they could, if the current market value would say four hundred twenty-five thousand, people necessarily aren't thinking about that they're making a profit of twenty-five thousand. They're looking at a loss because they're they're looking into the future or they're anchoring on the previous. Uh, they're essentially anchoring on the past uh, $500,000 price that currently doesn't exist. So that paralyzes them from actually selling the house. So that then also creates a problem if you're a buyer of the house is something that uh, you need to understand. And then, then, then there's just other issues like, um, you know, um, for example, making sure people understand that the, the issue of the, the information overload of the mortgage process, understanding that you're, they're signing this document and they should understand the details. So, for example, maybe for most people they shouldn't be buying uh, mortgages that are, are fixed. You know, so those, those are the type of issues that the, the, that chapter talks about. Very good. We have about a minute to go. So just kind of sum up what a difference it will make in people's lives if they understand all these investor behaviors and psychologies in affecting the kind of returns and financial lives they'll have going forward? Um, I just think that what the, uh, I think what the traditional school and the behavioral school represent is a better theory of behavioral finance. So, 
you know, to hit that point, um, traditional finance talks about how we should actually act. Behavioral finance looks at how we actually behave. So if we can take uh, both of the, the, the strongest pieces of both of the schools of thoughts, uh, develop a strategy in which we can assess, meet with a financial planner, assess the risk tolerance, your risk tolerance, whether that's aggressive, average, or conservative, match that with a predetermined asset allocation strategy for, for a long-term investor, uh, and then rebalance on a yearly basis, and we can start, and especially our, our children or our 20-somethings, if they get started early enough, that's the easiest way for them to become millionaires during their lifetimes based on the time value of money. I tell my students, um, I'm not lucky enough to win the lottery. I'm not smart enough to be Bill Gates. I know, I know all, I'm smart enough to know about all these biases, but I still suffer from them. So I might as well just do what I should be doing all along. And uh, after being in graduate school for many years, I finally learned the le- these, all these lessons. And boy, it was expensive, but that's how I typically say I'm, not, I'm just not as smart as everyone else. So I, I'm just going to use the basic time value money strategy, invest for the long term, and, I'll, and that's how 98% of people would likely have more than a million dollars in their retirement account during their lifetime. Very good. Well, thanks so much. You've given us some great advice. My uh, guest this hour has been Victor Riccardi. Uh, he's the author of the new book called Investor Behavior, the Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing. He's an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Victor. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 